From the Canoe West studio on the shores of beautiful Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, today is April 12, 2016, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. Today, at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks. Hi, Shirley. Good morning from Australia, where it's already April 13. Brian Ricks. Hello, Brian. Hey, good morning, Jim. And just for the record, it's six o'clock in the morning uh, right now in Australia. <laughs> I, I had to say it before you guys did. Yeah, and it's dark. Yeah. Right. Anyway, okay, you got your fame there. Thank you. <laughs> Grant Johnson. Good morning, Grant. Good, good morning. Actually, it's good afternoon here already for us. I'm stuck in the Australian thing now. We've heard so much of it in the in the pre-show <laughs> recording. <laughs> and, and Grant, you're, of course, in British Columbia. And Sam Manicom, who is top of the evening and i'm in the uk and it's dark out and who we're missing is graham field now graham is feeling under the weather and he couldn't make it today so um that's uh it's disappointing we'll have no one to pick on i don't really know what we're going to do (laughs) (laughs) where we're going to go but i was going to mention before we get going today is sort of an anniversary for us do you do you realize that it, this is no. this is well. This is four episodes. You know, so four episodes. That, that sort of means something. Four episodes of, of, of Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Let's wow! Happy I'm not birthday sure what four to us. Is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an even number, Grant. I mean, and, and it's more than two. So I just figured it was worth celebrating. Yeah, <laughs> we survived Jim, four times. It's, um, something that's worth celebrating is uh, I tell you the number of people that are coming up to me at bike shows and so on and they're saying oh man we listen to you guys on Adventure Rider Radio Raw what interesting conversations and such a diverse bunch of people really good learning shed loads and my comment to them was yeah I'm sitting there learning too (laughs) absolutely (laughs) we're getting good feedback as well at um, we're at a bike show in Williamstown uh, last weekend, and a guy came up and said how nice it was to put faces to the voices. So people are listening oh, down here in, in Australia as in well. In Williamstown, in Sydney, Melbourne, yep. Phillip Island. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And well done, Jim. Good well, evening. maybe in your yeah. case, it's nice to put faces to the voices. I don't know if people would say that if they met me. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a personal experience. And I was going to say, this cost a lot to send those people around to say that to you guys so far. I don't, I don't think we can afford it anymore. Thank you for doing that. We appreciate it. <laughs> Well, on today's topic, so the first thing we're going to discuss here is lane splitting. Lane splitting and filtering. Um, Who has a good definition for that? Because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I didn't really realize there was a different definition difference between uh, lane splitting and filtering because we don't have it here. I'm in Canada and British Columbia and legally, you know, it's, um, it's something you just can't do here. So who has a good definition? In Australia, in Victoria, where we live, it's just been legislated. So um, Brian probably has the best description of how to differentiate. We, our lobby groups here in uh, Australia, and particularly Victoria, where we live, uh, uh, lobbied our government uh, extensively and got uh, lawful lane filtering in. Now, filtering is when you're travelling through the traffic, and the law here says uh, anything up to 30 kilometres an hour uh, if the traffic is moving slower than that, you can filter through the traffic, or if, the, or if it's stationary, you can filter through the traffic. Lane splitting is illegal. Uh, splitting is when you're travelling at, uh, you know, 60 mile an hour down the freeway and uh, uh, terrorising motorists by uh, just about taking their mirrors off as you go between the the, the, uh, the lines of traffic. So the difference between filtering and splitting. Is um, is in a, a lawful definition here in Victoria? 
Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, we have in our notes here, the University of, of California at Berkeley uh, published a report in May 2015. And what they were saying is that um, motorcyclists who split lanes in heavy traffic, which is filtering, um, just the, the way they worded it, I guess, but um, yeah. have, are less likely to be struck from behind. And that's really the, the whole argument for this, isn't it? It's not so much, I mean, I think a lot of drivers, if, especially if you're just a car driver, you see a motorcycle split between you or the idea of it infuriates you because you think it's all about getting somewhere first and how dare they jump the queue. But it's actually backed up with, with this, uh, the research that says there's a safety aspect to it and a big one. Well, from my point of view, uh, Jim, uh, they're about 40, 50 years too late. Um, I've been lane filtering um, since I got on the road 42 years ago because it is the safest option. Even though it was illegal, it's definitely the safest option. I've seen people hit from behind um, in stationary traffic, uh, sideswiped, all sorts of things. And I think there's there's actually uh, manoeuvres that I make on uh, dual lane freeways to make yourself visible. Um, and if you... You think about it when you're travelling along in a lane, uh, and uh, you are extre- as far extreme away from a car as you can, and you're overtaking them. They can't see you when you get in their blind spot. You can't see. They can't see you. So the, the system is the same with lane filtering. If you are close to the lane, um, people can see you in their side mirrors, and as you come up towards them, and when you're doing an overtaking manoeuvre, you move across to give yourself a little bit of wriggle room just in case they come across in front of you. I think it's exactly the same thing. You've got to make yourself visible. Now, when you're lane filtering, you actually uh, are more visible because you, they see your light in, your, in the mirror. We're actually – we did it in the last couple of days and people actually moved uh, aside to let us through lane filtering now that it's legal here in Victoria. What about the, the, the public's response to it as you're riding down in between the cars and everybody's waiting in this big queue in the hot summer day? Uh, some, some motorists don't like it. Right, so they don't, they, don't some of them try they, and pull out and stop you? They do. They do definitely move over so there's not enough space for well, you to get through. Yeah, that has happened. And, and look, I, I was oblivious uh, that uh, lane filtering wasn't legal in Texas and uh, got yelled at several times <laughs> riding down the freeway in Texas. So I wonder no one didn't, someone didn't pull out a gun. Yeah, North America, it's a real issue. Yeah, from what I understand, it's only California in the States that, um, and I think it's legal now in California, from one of the articles I saw that was backed up by the American uh, Motorcycle Association. Uh, there's one here from LA Weekly, June 17, 2015. Um, it says that uh, a law recognizing officially uh, lane splitting was passed in California. So I you know- uh, that's that's great, Jim, and I think that's right. But I reckon what we need is for particularly international travellers is a list because when you cross from state border to state border, particularly in the states, you've got no idea if it's legal to wear a helmet, well, whether a it's point. not legal, all those sorts of issues. And lane filtering is a is a, a, a is a very particular. That's a really good point because, you know, I'm trying this Garmin GPS right now, one of the, the Zumos, and uh, it's on it, it has a, an option so you can go and check which areas have legal no helmet um, laws so, or, or no helmet, uh, sorry, they don't require you to wear a helmet, but, yeah. which to me is a, a waste of time, I think I'm going to wear it anyway, but that yeah, would be an too. interesting, that would be a very useful thing to have in your GPS to say, where can you, where can you lane split, where can you filter? Yeah, Exactly. Sam, do you do you lane split and filter in the UK? Oh, absolutely, all of the time. Um, well, all right, let me ju- let me just rewind on that all of the time bit. Um, but no, absolutely. At every opportunity. Uh, yeah, too right. And I don't. And I I've never 
um, noticed a difference in definition between lane splitting and filtering. For me, they mean the same thing, and when I'm talking to mates, they mean the same thing. Um, I, I think the most important things about lane splitting are that it reduces congestion absolutely dramatically. In the UK, it's a small island with an awful lot of people living here, and if lane splitting wasn't allowed, um, well, my goodness, um, the traffic would just back up even more than it does. Um, in, in major cities, they're really actively encouraging the use of uh, two-wheeled um, powered vehicles because of the way that it cuts down the congestion in the cities and uh, lane splitting does it i mean there are an awful lot of common sense things about it but you know it's it's the freedom it's it's not being stuck in traffic sitting sweating in your bike gear or getting completely drenched and standing still and visor fogging up because you're sitting in the pouring rain and for me personally, it allows me to get more out of my day. And I love the fact that I'm not sitting stuck in traffic, breathing in belching fumes um, and having my bike engine overheating underneath me. And quite frankly, um, I think it's nuts that um, so many um, countries, states don't allow it. I've ridden in many, many countries where it works so well. Um, but, you know, like everything, to make it work, it needs a set of things, doesn't it? It needs well-written, common sense and clear laws that are enforced. And one of those is slow speed. And you see complete nutters in the UK who really damage the concept and, and the respect yeah. that we have from other traffic users by mm. burning past traffic like complete idiots. You know, low visibility, headlights not on, no light motorcycle clothing, just going completely stupid speed. And those sorts of people, are what I'm saying is clear laws that need to be enforced. Those people mm. should be stopped because the vast majority of people who lane split in the UK do it with considerable respect. And, you know, you ride... Um, with um, understanding that the other road users are going to do something that you're not expecting. And that happens more and more and more. I mean, I'm, I've, I ride a lot, so you know, I watch other drivers just as much as I watch what their, their cars are doing. And you can see who's distracted, who's using their mobile phone when they shouldn't be, who's checking a map, who's thinking about mm -hmm. what they're cooking for dinner tonight. And when you're lane splitting, you know, you've really got to work hard to be anticipating what other people are going to be doing. But that, that, that's, a, that's a big part. But what you were saying just earlier, and, and we were getting too far away from it, so I wanted to jump in now, because you said about mm -hmm. overheating and the smell. And I think that's a lot of people would say, you know what, that's too bad. You choose to ride a motorcycle. If you're hot or your bike's overheating, suck it up, deal with it. That's traffic. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's going to be valid in anybody's sense of, of the, you know, okay. how things should let, be. Let me turn that around then. Um, if I'm not sitting sweating in my bike gear and every other motorcycle um, on a busy day is not doing the same thing, then all of those cars are going to be moving forward faster. So they're not going to be sitting, sucking up fuel and feeling frustrated. Because, because because they're the stuck behind the bikes. Yeah. No, I disagree with you there, Jim. Too. I, I, the, the issue is uh, when you're hot and you're sweaty or you're raining and you, you've got rain dribbling down the back of your neck and all the rest of it. Your concentration isn't fully on the road, and uh, I, I've found that when you actually lane filter like we do, it, you're actually concentrating more uh, mm -hmm. on your riding, your ability, your balance, what gear you're in. You know whether you can make it to the 
to the front of the lights before they change, whether you have to stop and wait and you're still stuck in a little bit of traffic before you get to the front. All those issues increase your concentration levels. So I disagree with you. Yeah, but Brian, don't you think that people would argue that that's your choice to ride a motorcycle? So so if it's inconvenient or you're cold or whatever, well, you drive a car. You know, Don't you think people would say that? Yeah, I think Sam was just saying it as his personal feeling. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the legislation here in Victoria is a safety issue. It's motorcycle safety, not, not even traffic congestion. Mm. The um, the powers that be here, it said they introduced it to get the motorcycles to the front of the traffic so they're not going to be rear-ended. Um, and as long as it's done at a slow speed, it's it's a safe it's a safe thing to do. But also, what Sam said, people doing it at high speed, which is um, illegal here, uh, are crazy. Not only are they putting themselves at risk, it's just going to ruin everyone's day if they go under your car. The problem is that they don't care. All they care about is getting to the front of the line. I've been in, ridden to over ten years in the UK, and I remember sitting in traffic or, or moving in traffic at a, a reasonable speed, 50, 60 miles per hour, and thought, this is okay. I certainly am not going to lanes. And guys go by me splitting lanes at 80 and 90 miles per hour. That's, yeah, it, they're, see, they're that's insane. It is insane and it is illegal. And they just, they just shouldn't do it. They do it, then it causes problems for the rest of us who do it safely and legally. Yeah, it does. That's exactly, but that's exactly my point. And um, I think that this is why, when laws have to be, uh, are written for this sort of thing, they have to be well written. They have to be full of common sense, and they have to be um, enforced. And, and idiots who are doing that sort of stuff should be yanked. Um, they should they should be fined massively or have their licenses taken away because um, they they're just damaging what's happening for everybody else. And Brian mentioned well, Brian and Shirley mentioned about people falling in front of you when you're lane splitting. Um, it, it's lane splitting has happened for for so long in the UK. Um, I very rarely see that happen. Um, most people will see you in their rearview mirrors if you're suitably lit up, you're traveling gently. Um, You know, I always ride with um, uh, my headlight on. I have a white crash helmet. If I know that I'm going to be riding in um, really heavy traffic or in bad weather conditions, then I I wear fluorescent because I know I'm better seen. Um, And people, they notice you. And most people in the UK move over. I do laugh because there are a few people, namely those who um, traditionally drive 4 by 4 we call them Chelsea tractors. Um, there's no reason for them to be driving these things except for it gives them a good view, but not a good enough view for actually seeing us. And when they do, um, gosh, so many of them move across in front of you to block the lane. It's, it's so funny. I, I sit and laugh at them because I think, mates, you're just being pathetic. Um, but most people take note of you and they move to one side and we I always that in- give them a wave and say thank you as I'm going past them. The first time we rode a motorcycle in the UK in 2003 we were absolutely gobsmacked at the number of um, motorists who moved over when we were coming through traffic to let us through and we always wave at the drivers who make the effort, always. Yeah. You Susan's see, my- job is to wave at the uh, and say thank you as we're driving through yeah. when we're filtering. Yeah. Always. Exactly. Just waving constantly. Exactly. <laughs> you see, my point was when I'm asking about, I'm saying about, you know, it's our choice to ride a motorcycle. What I'm trying to provoke here is the fact that it's not, a, we're not suffering by riding a motorcycle and a motorcycle has as much right to the road as a car does. You know, people often think that cars, that roads are made for cars only. Roads are made for transportation, aren't they? They're made to get us around. What If you're driving a, a car 
car, you take up a lot more space, obviously, than a bike. It doesn't mean that you have more of a right to be there. And I think that's what runs through my mind because people often figure, well, that's too bad. You know, if you're you're riding a motorcycle and it's uncomfortable, it's a it's a recognized form of transportation, whether we enjoy it or not. However, you look at it, it's far better for the environment. It's far better for fuel consumption. All those things that that go along with it. So to me, it, it's um, like the the thing that I really look at when it comes to that is the fact that we have as much or motorcyclists have as much right as the car does on the road to begin with. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But I think where things tend to go wrong in North America is that, let me put it this way, the difference that I've observed between North America and Europe driving thinking is that in North America, you own your piece of the road. This is your piece of the road and you're not giving it up for anybody and you're certainly not going to move over for anybody else because you own the road. Yeah. Okay. It's a right. Yeah. Attitude. Okay? That's exactly Attitude. right. Attitude. Yeah, and in sure. Europe, it's so congested, so crowded that everybody helps everybody else and cooperates with everybody. And if you can move your car over a couple of inches so another car can squeeze past and down a side road, you'll do that. And people do that all the time. It's a cooperative thing. We are all trying to get somewhere and if we help each other and we make room and we squeeze up and we just clip somebody else's mirror just miss it and let somebody else buy somewhere else that's fine and that works because somebody else will do it for me yeah okay? it's in a Asia, absolutely classic example yep yeah. exactly the same thing it's cooperative versus it's mines Hey, Grant, Get out of I, here. I, I'm a firm believer that in UK traffic jams don't happen because of the weight of traffic or because of roadworks. They happen because you get two people at the front of the queue who going, no, no, after you, I insist. No, 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 after you, I insist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not going to happen here, let me tell you. A little, a little interesting little tidbit for you for the, the travellers too. We were up in it was either Yukon or Alaska, I can't remember which, and there was a big lineup of cars. So we drive up the side, you figure, you know, this is the middle of nowhere, you're out in a remote highway, and there's a lineup of cars. We'll just filter up to the front and pass all the cars when it all happens. Just as we got there, the flag person waved, okay, go, and then started screaming, yelling out loud at us, what are you doing? Go to the back of the line, stop, pull over, you can't do that. Wow. Yeah, we had that in Alaska as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. We were at some roadworks. I don't think it was Alaska, somewhere in the States, and uh, a big line of traffic, and we just filtered up to the front, and there was a truck at the front, and he waved at us, and we pulled in front of him, and next thing, the, the flag lady came up and abused me something fierce, and I said, oh, get over it, girl, you know. <laughs> it's not a big issue. He's not worried about it. So, uh, yeah, and we're not going to hold a gun anybody on me, up. So I live. <laughs> you know, the bizarre thing is, you, you said it right there, Grant, you're not going to hold anybody up. It's not like anyone's going to, you know, take longer to get there because the motorcycle came up and went in front. But but we have that mentality, don't we? I mean, there's a, yep. it's really widespread here, especially in North America. That of, is the North American thinking is you take your turn. It's, I will stay ahead of you and you will stay behind me. I own this piece of the road. Yeah. And it's really bad. There is no concept of cooperation and let's help each other. It just isn't there. And it really frustrates me. Do you know, that's really, I, I find this really strange because, um, you know, I've often, uh, obviously I've ridden in the States quite a lot and I've observed exactly the same things. Yet um, North America as a whole, people are just so hugely hospitable. Yep. Yet when you stick them in a vehicle, it seems <laughs> to change. <laughs> oh, right. Because in North America, seen some... driver's license is a, is a 
legal right. You are a you are you have a right, God-given, born right to have a driver's license, and you own that vehicle and you own the road. But but that's, that's not true, though. Really, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's not totally true. I mean, it's, it's a privilege, and, and that's how they they stress it, it to you. You know, it's. But that's not the way people think. But it's amazing how often you'll see a car driving really aggressively and you'll be expecting, you know, some young, hot-headed guy with tattoos all over him. You know, somebody you'd picture as, as being this rough, aggressive person. All of a sudden you see a person get out and it's this, this tiny little businessman. And, and he's so <laughs> meek and mild when he gets out of his car. But behind the car, it's like he changes, becomes a demon. <laughs> yes, because he can. <laughs> so do you think that bearing this in mind that the laws will change in the United States or do you think, and Canada, sorry, North America, yes. or do you think that the culture is um, so heavily ingrained that it's me first and I think my bit of rose is mine for it to ever change? I would like to see it change, and I think it's entirely possible that it will. California does tend to lead the way in a lot of things, um, and that, that may change the laws everywhere, but the biggest problem is going to be educating everybody. Yeah, I, I think, it's I, I think down under, we're, we're going through that right now in, in our state. Um, the, the education process is uh, quite extensive. There's lots of advertising. There's lots of government support to, to advertise, to ex explain to people that lane filtering is now legal. So, uh, yeah, and it's not just here, it's in New South Wales and it's going up the eastern seaboard of Australia. But you see, the thing is, I, I think it's not just education. I think it's an excellent question, by the way, Sam. It's not just about educating the people. It's about changing a collective mentality. And that's part of the education. I, I understand that's what education will do. But you, I think they'll almost have to um, enforce laws about stopping people from filtering uh, if, they're, if they're going to do it here in North America. I mean, you know, in, for instance, for Canada, for Canada-wide, to really get the point across that you can't stop people. Because right now, if you were to filter, and, and it's not legal, but if you were to try and filter, a lot of people will move over and stop you from going. You could be a, a doctor on your way to the hospital for an emergency or something, but people, they don't care. They want to stop you from getting ahead. Yeah, they, they want to prevent you from breaking the law. People will actually drive in the left lane at exactly the speed limit to prevent speeders, people that want to go faster, from speeding. <laughs> they, will, they will do that. I mean, it's... it's it's like, what? And then they'll go cheat on their taxes. Yeah. Um, and we, then we won't talk about the, uh, the HOV lanes we have here as well. Um, there's lots of people that are in the HOV lanes doing exactly the speed limit in heavy traffic when the, the fast lane beside them is doing 20, 30K over the limit. But they're in the HOV lane. They are allowed to be in the HOV lane, and they will go at exactly the speed limit rather than what, driving the slow what is lane. An H, what is an HOV line, Grant? Sorry. <laughs> High occupancy vehicle, which means that you, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. if you've got two people or more or a motorcycle yeah. and the yeah. uh, motorcycles are allowed in the HOV lanes and yet they have to have signs because when they first allowed motorcycles in the HOV lanes, there were people that were stopping motorcycles from going into the HOV lane. Yeah. Yep. You can't do that. Yeah, we have so we have you. signs. Yeah, we have signs to allow motorcycles in those lanes, and also in some of our bus lanes in peak hour traffic, you can take a motorcycle into them. Yeah, it has to be signed. And I think the That's the big thing with educating people, if lane splitting does become legal here, is not just saying it's legal. You have to let them go. You have to say why it's legal. It's for improved safety yeah. on a motorcycle. It's for reducing traffic. It's for reducing pollution. Yeah. It's for yeah. your good. And you will get home faster if motorcycles are allowed to split lanes. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, and, that's, and that's, that's what's happening here. That's, that's the education program here. Great. Brian, are there any um, YouTube clips or anything like that um, 
that the government's uh, produced? Yes, I think there are actually. Uh, I'll try It'd be really and, uh, interesting to do that. Yeah, I'll try and source them and, uh, and send them across to Jim. That's what I was going to say. Put mm. some links in the show notes for it. Mm. So, does anyone know of any list? And particularly Grant, you, I mean, I think you'd probably be the one to know. It should be on your website. Is there a list of lane splitting states, countries, or anything like that? Not that I've ever seen. Hmm. I have no idea, but I would love to start a, lane, uh, a thread on that. We could certainly do it. Why don't you fact, do that? I, I think that's a yeah. great idea. Let, let's yeah. start that and I see, do that. get people to start putting in there and find out because it would make it a lot easier. Um, you know, like Brian says, when you're going somewhere to know where you're going to be able to do it, you won't end up getting screamed at or freaked out on. Mm-hmm. Sure. So if you're not accustomed to lane splitting and filtering, what do you do if you go to a country, well, what if I, what if I go to the UK, for instance? I mean, I know you guys ride on the wrong side of the road. I realize that, Sam. <laughs> and it'd be great if you could get that sorted <laughs> out. It would make it a lot, more, <laughs> a lot friendlier for me. <laughs> but so what if I don't want a lane split? Don't. That's okay. Uh, uh, Nobody's going to be bothered. No. no one cares. No, no, no one cares. And uh, I, what I do is I sit and watch other motorcyclists and I just yeah. watch what they do and you get the feel of the road and the feel of how the traffic moves mm, and then tip. eventually you fall into that routine. Right, yeah. that's a good tip. So you're just watching the locals and, and do what they yeah, do. Yeah, and I yeah, think, absolutely. I mean, that's what we all do with all aspects of traffic whenever we roll into a new country. Um, we spend the first few hours, days, just traveling really gently and watching what the locals do, and then we adapt our style accordingly. And right. that's what keeps Overlanders alive, isn't it? Yeah, I, I make a point of doing that. I, I even like to stop when I'm in town. And if I arrive in a new town and it's the traffic's crazy, I like to find a roadside cafe and just sit there and watch. Get well, an idea. idea. What, what's the flow? What's the feel? What's the pace? Uh, yep. Some countries, it, it's really fast and hectic. Other countries, it's very leisurely. Other countries, you know, cooperation versus non-cooperation. How does it work? Well, we I, rode in Hanoi in Vietnam, <laughs> and um, chaos just doesn't describe the, what the roads <laughs> I, I, are I've like. Got to, I've got to explain our first experience here. <laughs> I said to Shirley, we get to Hanoi, and there's a big intersection there right near the lake, and there's a bar. Above it, and I said to Shirley, "Yeah, we'll go up here." And, and, and she looked at the traffic, and her eyes just about popped out of her head. How the <laughs> hell are we going to ride in this? I said, "You just watch." And uh, then I took her downstairs and walked her across the middle of this six-way intersection, like like the locals do. Mm-hmm. And uh, she just—I think she just closed her eyes and, and, yeah. and grabbed my hand. But once you get into the the, the, the rhythm of riding a motorcycle in that, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, but to get the, the, the way they just all converge on each other at all the time, how there aren't major collisions every 25 right. feet they, is just extraordinary. They have the right attitude. They give space to people to, to do their thing. Yeah, it's going back to cooperation. It, it's um, one of the things that we noticed while we were sitting in, in, in um, Vietnam and watching the traffic prior to, to wait into it ourselves um, was that we noticed that if you um, wanted to do a, a right turn, for example, and you were swimming with the salmon, um, then you always went behind the vehicles. Um, so you waited for the ones beside you and, you, and then you tucked in behind them and you just sort of gently always go in behind the vehicles. Yes, that's right, Sam, yes. yes and that just seems to work. And we saw um, two very minor accidents in a, a month of riding there. Um, when I read the statistics earlier on today that 30 people die every day on the road in Vietnam, I was gobsmacked um, because we just didn't see accidents except for those yeah. two very minor spills. I forget but, which uh, country it is, but I think it might be India has the highest rate of accidents in the world. Mm-hmm. 
per capita. And having been there and driven around, yep, I can certainly see it. Oh, absolutely. One yeah. bus takes out two hundred people. You know? <laughs> what, what about the help. fact? What, what about the fact that um, if there is a collision when you're lane splitting, that um, what I've read here and one of the ones is on a, a site here from Canada um, saying that it's usually the rider's fault, the motorcycle rider's fault, if they're lane splitting and there's an accident because of it. I guess is that the case everywhere in the UK and in Australia? Hmm. Sam, you have to think um, about that one. <laughs> I've read quite a lot about this over the years, and um, it does seem to be that the motorcyclist tends to come off worse, but a lot depends on how their witness behaving. If their witness behaving very sensibly and they're sticking within the rules, which are, you know, you, your own, if, if traffic, for example, is going at 10 miles an hour, then you're debating, do I lane split? Um, 30 miles an hour, well, you're probably um, lane splitting and then the traffic's going too fast for you to sensibly be doing it. But you're also expected, if you're lane splitting, to be watching for vehicles coming across in front of you or coming out from side turnings and all of those sorts of things. If you're lane splitting, that's your responsibility. And if you make an accident happen because you're not paying attention to that sort of thing, then you're the one that's likely to get the blame. And I think that's fair. Mm. In, mm-hmm. uh, in Victoria, our um, motorcycle fatalities this year are astronomical. Um, there's already been 26 motorcyclists killed on the roads here. And a lot of commentators have raised the issue that was it because um, of the change in legislation. But our Assistant Commissioner Traffic has said that that is not the case and that um, I'm not sure of the exact percentage, but a percentage of those motorcyclists were killed because of um, things that car drivers did. Uh, Yeah, that's right. And I was talking to him uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was, um, I think, 12 of those were unlicensed Riders, um, uh, unregistered, uninsured motorcycles. Uh, oh, people without helmets. Can you yeah, believe that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just reckless behaviour more mm. than anything. Well, on to uh, to our next thing. I mean, that's uh, lane splitting. Before I think. we go there, can I just give a top tip for um, lane splitting? By all means, yeah. If anybody's not used to doing it, um, well, the first thing is know the width of your, of your bike and your luggage. But right. the other thing is, um, <laughs> that's, that's important. Has anybody done know? that before? Went around a, a, some little obstacle or something and wham into the, the bag? Um, yeah. I, I, I could I, show I, you pictures <laughs> of people. <laughs> it happens all the time. Really I was does. on the back of a guy's bike and he's golfing and ended up with a wing mirror in my elbow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sam. That's right. It, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and, to begin with when I loaded my bike. I wasn't paying very much attention to it. I was just making sure the gear was strapped on. But anybody who's seen the photograph of my bike when I first started riding is going to be rolling around laughing now. But anyway, moving rapidly on. Um, (laughs) How many people think about, is my luggage wider than my handlebars? It's such a common sense thought, isn't it? Once you start thinking about lane splitting. If your handlebars are wider than the luggage that's behind you and you can get your handlebars through the gap, then you can get through. But one thing, if you're a novice at lane splitting, that you can do for yourself as an insurance policy is use some cable ties and stick yourself some cat's whiskers on the either ends of your handlebars so that you're gaining yourself, let's say, an extra four or five inches of width on your handlebars. And you know that if you can get those um, cat's whiskers through, then there's a very good chance that all of you will get through quite comfortably. Mm, good tip, yeah. Good tip, yep. 
Yep, yep, for sure. Well, BMW's 32 inches wide. I know that. Another tip is um, if, if there's other people lane splitting, then follow them. Let them be a pathfinder. If they're, yeah, they're in yeah. front of you, it's, it's exactly. a bit like a bow wave. So um, if you just leave the lid off, you won't have to unscrew it again. <laughs> Whoever was taking Whoa. a drink. <laughs> Someone's had too much. <laughs> I hear somebody unscrewing something there, and I was just trying to give a tip there. Of course, you don't want to tip it over on your computer. <laughs> I think Graham's in the background there opening his first scotch. <laughs> <laughs> See, he's not even here, and he's getting picked on. <laughs> yeah, we've got to have somebody to pick on. <laughs> so the, the next topic was, or is, essential repair skills and tools. And how do we deal with breakdowns? In other words, how prepared do you have to be, I guess, overall? But um, what are the essentials? You know, what, what are the things you guys as travelers think that people really ought to know? Now, I, I realize that, you know, everybody, this is definitely an opinion thing. And, and some people will argue for some and, and others for others. But there's some basics like your tire changing and your, your oil change and your chain adjustment that some may think, um, you know, really the, the, the bare necessities. What do you guys think? Let me throw in something to start off the top. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people what they think their opinion is. And I remember two guys in particular. One of them said, I don't even carry a toolkit. I have no idea how to use any of what's in it. And if my bike breaks down, I'll just wait until somebody comes. Somebody will come. <laughs> and another guy says, well, I carry the toolkit, but I have no idea what to do with it. But at least it's there and somebody will come along who knows how to use it. So I guess the response to be devil's advocate, which I love doing, would be that, wait a second now, if you're going to head off on a hike, for instance, um, isn't it sort of incumbent upon you as the person that's doing this adventure to learn how to use your, your map and your compass before you go, rather than just bumping into the people you pass and say, which way do I go? Like, isn't there some sort of personal responsibility or does that not apply? Which okay, is well, why search and rescue hate that. some people. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Listen, when I first started riding a motorcycle and I set off down through Africa, I'd had two lessons. The lessons um, taught me how to change the air and oil filters to do the valve clearance and to change cables. And I knew I could change tire because I had a bicycle and it couldn't be that different, could it? Yeah, well, you learn. <laughs> my, master plan, my fiendishly cunning master plan was that I was carrying enough spare parts to almost build another BMW. And the idea was that I, if I broke down, I would sit down by the side of the road with my tool kit and my manual and I would keep swapping bits until something made it work. If it didn't, let's say two things had gone wrong at the same time, then I was going to flag a truck down and I was going to start a new adventure. But for me, and this fits in I think was where, where Jim was aiming, for me the key is that um, an individual has to do all they can to decrease the chances of a breakdown. And if they've done that, then people will usually help, but there's a difference between being stuck and needing help and not having bothered to try and get it right. Now, I accept that not everybody's mechanically minded. I certainly wasn't when I started. I know a little bit more now. Um, But I think people need to know how to do the basics, and I think it's an unfair cop-out by not knowing how to do the bog-standard basics. And I also think that unless you have the ability to compartmentalise, then actually you will sit on the back of your bike thinking, gosh, what's that sound? And Blimey, is that, a, is that a puncture? How on earth am I going to fix it? I haven't got a clue. And what a, what a horrible distraction those things are from the magic of being on an adventure. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, and I have to disagree. I think there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's okay, coming from the point of view, I, used, I started off in life as a mechanic, and I can rebuild my bike from scratch without a problem. And I carry actually a lot of tools. I carry two tool rolls with everything I could possibly need to do everything on my old R80. And I, and I know how to use it. But there's an awful lot of people today that have no mechanical skills, really shouldn't be allowed to touch a screwdriver because they're dangerous with it and they're going to hurt themselves. And should we say that you can't go on a trip and you can't go traveling because you don't know what you're doing? I don't think no, so. I, I think it's okay. Wait a second. Would you say a climber should be, or a guy should be able to go, or a girl should be able to go climbing without proper knowledge of how to climb? Absolutely, because that's a safety thing. But knowing how to fix your bike yeah, is not safety. Point. That's a good point. Okay. Okay, there's let, a big let, difference. Let me quantify what I was trying to say. Um, I think that if somebody can set out knowing how to do things like fix punctures, um, replace their cables, their filters... Um, check their brake pads are okay, do their chain tension, um, change light bulbs, those sorts of really basic things. Um, combine that with changing oil too frequently um, and always at the end of an early day's ride going around the bike and making sure something's not not come loose, you know, nuts and bolts and things. I think if if a person sets out and that's all they know how to do, um, then they have a chance of not having major breakdowns if their bike is in good condition when they set off. And you yeah. don't need to be a mechanical genius to know how to do those things. But not to know how to do those things, I think, is just lazy and asking for trouble. There we are. I'm going to get off my orange box now. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm with you, Sam. I, I agree with that. And bikes nowadays are so reliable uh, that uh, really uh, you really just need those basic skills. You know, I can do my valve clearances, change my oil, uh, fix a tyre. The other thing is with tyres nowadays, tubeless tyres are so much easier to repair on the road and so much safer than tube tyres in my opinion. You have a flat tyre on on your front and the tube goes uh, flat, the the tyre runs off the rim straight away, you're in trouble. Whereas, and I've had it happen, uh, where you get a flat tyre on the front, it just deflates and goes all mushy and you have time to pull up. But a lot of people still don't know how to plug a tubeless tyre. And it's one of the easiest things to do. Now, I've, I carry that all the time and, and now a little air compressor. And I reckon I've repaired more of other people's tyres than my own. But um, it, it, those basics, I think, are very important. And the other thing that you need to do is know your bike. For example, um, we had an alternator belt go on our 1150 GS. I carry a spare alternator belt with me now because it's a, it's a hard-to-get part in some parts of the world. You carry spark plugs, a bit of fuel line for um, uh, fuel-injected bikes, and really just that little basic knowledge about what could go wrong with your bike. All right, if you have a major um, repair, um, I have a, my mechanic mate lined up to send me parts wherever I am in the world, and I'll fix him up later. Um, those little things I think you need and you'll always find a mechanic somewhere if you don't have the knowledge to do major repairs. Yeah, I would agree with most of that. I would just disagree with things like oil change. Having run a motorcycle shop and seeing how many people managed to strip the plug on their drain plug, it's just scary. There are some people that really shouldn't be changing their oil 
at all. But the, the basic how to plug a tire, how to do a quick check, run around, check nuts and bolts, make sure everything seems tight without tightening everything. And oh. I've seen people do, do a nuts and bolts check by tightening everything a little bit. And eventually everything starts breaking. Um, the basics, basics, sure, you should know how to do. But I, oh, I still really? think that you don't have to know if you don't want to know. Yeah. I thought the basic rule was you, you tighten it until it strips a little bit, then back it off half a turn. <laughs> That's a good one for me. <laughs> you know, but to, to what you were saying, Brian, that the other thing too is that bikes, they're reliable, but they're also really complicated nowadays. So, I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff yeah. is beyond most people's ability to do, and, and probably everyone in some cases along the side of the road. There's some stuff you're just not going to be able to do. But but let's look at the basics then. What, what could we agree on are the basics that we should know as a rider going off. And I'm talking about not just riding around the block here, you know, close to your home. I'm talking about if you're going on an extended trip, possibly into places where it's going to be tough to find help and that you don't really want to be stuck on the on the side of a mountain pass. Um, places like that. What are the basics? Tires. Yeah, definitely tires. You got to be able, you got to know how to plug a tire. I think that's really important. Would you say change a tire too? Change a tire. As, as Brian was saying, with tubeless tires, you can just plug it. 99% of the time, a plug will work fine. Sure. Tube-type tires, if you're going to run with tube-type tires, then, yep, you should know how to do that because you could be stuck somewhere where you can't. And, but again, the big thing with a motorcycle is that you're probably on some semblance of a road. And the road was built for people to drive their cars, trucks, whatever, to get somewhere on. Sooner or later, there will be a vehicle along, and they can either load you into the back of a truck or they can go and get a truck for you and haul you out. It's not the end of the world, as long as you're on some semblance of a road. But I know, Grant, you said that some people shouldn't be touching uh, anything to repair it because they don't have the mechanical skills. But what I was thinking is that, but that's sort of the the prep that you do before you go. I mean, everyone, I think, can learn how to change a tire. I don't think you have to come from a mechanical background to learn how to do it. You teach it all the time um, at your your meets. People learn it who don't have mechanical skills or don't have background in fixing things. So I I just wonder if it's not, you know, prudent, at least, of someone to, if they're going on something like this, Take the time, learn the skills, learn it. Like even when it comes to the oil change, learn how to change it properly from a professional. Yeah, I'm absolutely yeah. in favor of that. I think it, it, that you should learn and I think it's great to learn, but I will never say that if you don't know or you're not capable or you just don't want to, that you shouldn't travel. Hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, all I'm that's true. Yeah. The, the, the other thing is chain adjustment. Um, I've got a friend I'm helping uh, get back into riding uh, and bought a new uh, V-Strom, nice little bike, all the rest of it. And he said to me, uh, do you know how to adjust a chain? I said, yes. I didn't have a center stand and all those sorts of things. So I told him about lining up the wheels and all those sorts of things. That's a basic skill that everyone should know, how to adjust their chain and, and how to oil their chain properly is another mm-hmm. good one. Um, so you get longevity out of it. Um, you know, it's spraying a bit of oil on the outside of a chain does nothing except throw it off onto your back wheel. Yeah, those especially sorts- two minutes before you head off. That's the worst. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Like a motorcycle is a hands-on vehicle. It's not like a car where you just, most cars nowadays just jump in and drive and you're fine, even though you still are supposed to do a circle check and check, a, uh, you know, your, your things on your on your car. But with a motorcycle, they tend to be more maintenance heavy. We tend to have to look at things and it's more critical because if you don't check your tires and there was a problem before you left, you just missed the opportunity possibly to save you from a real bad incident to say the least. Yeah, yep. yeah. Every time I stopped, we, we were stopped on a, on a beautiful viewpoint, and uh, 
a lady walked past and she said, what's that in your tyre? And I looked and it was a nail going through a brand new tyre. Things like that. Every time you stop, you should just have a quick look. First thing I do when when I pull off the highway into a gas station, first thing I do is put my hand on each tyre. How's the temperature? Does it feel yeah. normal? Yeah. Is it hot? If it's hot, I got a problem. Yeah, that goes for bearings as well. I mean, I often tell people this about even your vehicle, anything you're you're driving. If you just put your hand over and, and start to learn the temperature or compare them from one to the other, you can tell that you got a bearing going, whether it's heating up, and it'll give you such a long warning signal rather than waiting until the thing falls apart. Sure. You know, I think... People shouldn't fear breaking down. Um, if they know how to do the bog standard basics, like the punctures and cables and chain tension and changing light bulbs, the things that are going to make the difference between you remaining safe or not and giving you the chance to get somewhere if you've got a more major problem. But not fearing breakdown, I, I don't think that they should. And I don't think that should stop anybody um, doing um, a, a trip because they really are, as Grant said, you know, with a vehicle coming on, they're the start of a new adventure. And, you know, just the whole concept of, okay, so now I've got to get my bike off the street into, into the back of a truck. How am I going to do that? And then what's the truck driver going to be like? Where's he from? What's, has he got a family? Has he got kids? What's his background? And all of those sorts of things you can learn and from, from just a breakdown. And it's a whole new adventure that you're getting involved with. And I think one of the differences between a breakdown at home is that normally you're under time pressure. But when you're on the road, you're not so much under time pressure, certainly not on a long trip. So you've got the, tape, you've got the time to, to enjoy the adventure that, that might um, be happening because you've broken down. But my top tip on this is make a, um, a relationship with um, a parts supplier at home and a mechanic who knows what they're doing. Because then if you do get stuck when you're out on the road, you've got a guy at home who supplies the bits for your bike, who knows who you are, where you are, what you're doing, has got contact details for you, has probably got payment details for you. Um, if you're going to get your spare parts sent out to you, then um, he's, he knows about working with the carne so that he can send the, get the parts sent out to you. Um, using the same temporary import details as your carne does, all of those sorts of things. You know, yeah. when we were traveling in South America, we had a couple of breakdowns and there was um, a brilliant BMW airhead mechanic in London called Bob Perecha and he still works on bikes now. And, you know, there were a couple of times that I was completely foxed. I could not work out what the problem was. And we phoned him and told him the symptoms and he diagnosed the problems both times over the telephone and that was just awesome so yeah build those relationships with those two people the parts suppliers and somebody who really knows your bike before you go that's a really really good tip sam did you just say foxed Fox, yeah. yeah. You did? Confused. Okay. All right. I thought, okay. that, I thought it was something else you said. I thought, that, that doesn't sound like Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw a top tip on top of that that goes with what Sam was saying. The, the issue of sending the stuff. We've seen, and we had the own experience ourselves, sending stuff from one country to another continent entirely can be a real problem. Because if you send, for instance, a part from North America to... Um, Ushuaia or Rio Gallegos we did and what happens is that you have somebody at the other end send it they send it via FedEx guess what FedEx's last office in Argentina is in Buenos Aires so they hand your package off to some local shipping company who will eventually visit 
your town that you're in, maybe if you're lucky. <laughs> so the real tip is to find out who the major shipping company is in the town you're in. And then you tell the guys at home to ship via that company. Then you have one company shipping your product, your part, from end to end, rather than passing it off in the middle. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples closer to home. We uh, snapped a shock absorber in Canada, and it had to come from the United States. And, of course, it has to go through customs, doesn't it? Yep, sure so does. It took 10 days. And at Sam's point about breaking down the road, we met some wonderful people that uh, rescued us from the side of the road and uh, looked after us for 10 days waiting for our shock absorber. So Canada uh, to America or vice versa is a problem. And uh, when we travelled across uh, Russia, I was after my, my mechanic mate to send me some brake pads. Um, DHL refused to ship uh, anything uh, other than paperwork into Russia because it is so complicated. So uh, if you're looking for parts and you're going across Russia to be shipped in, forget it. You're not going to get them. What did you do for brake pads? I actually found a, 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 um, a hire company called Muzz2, uh, who are a Swedish company, and uh, they foraged through their brake pads. We're in Kyrgyzstan, I think, Shirley. Mm. Uh, yeah, we're, we're there based, yeah. And uh, I found a set of brake pads that fitted my uh, my rear wheel. So um, <laughs> they, what they do is they get their clients to bring parts in when they come to pick up their, their bikes. So they have a, a supply of uh, parts, and they were great people, fantastic people. But, you know, um, you, you can modify things. We could have kept going if we needed to, but... Uh, that's a real um, problem if you're going across that part of the world is you can't get things shipped in. You know, a little tip on brake pads, you can actually peel the material off or grind off the old material and there are places that can bond new brake pad material yeah. onto your old piece of metal. Yeah, that's true. We, we, we bumped into a, a, another crazy Australian who was riding uh, from um, Quetta into uh, Afghanistan and back and he'd run out of back brakes and he found a guy that... Uh, um, uh, stuck uh, or glued um, cowhide to his rear brake pads so that wasn't metal on metal. Didn't work yeah. too well, but it didn't stop him. Yeah. Re great. Replacing brake linings uh, in the days of drum brakes was done commonly. It was a routine thing. It's done less now, but it still is done. There are places where there's lots of cars still that have drums on the rear, and those linings can be rebonded. So just yeah. any car brake lining is very, very hard and will last extremely well on your motorcycle. It won't stop great, but it'll stop pretty good. So let's go back <laughs> to our list here. So we've got number one, we've got tires, the ability to plug or change a tire. Number two, um, Brian's reading there about chain adjustment. Um, what else? What else would be those basic skills that you would send somebody off with or at least advise them? Of cable adjustment. Cable. Yeah. yeah, cable adjustment, spark. cable replacement, spark plugs. Yeah. Spark plugs, yeah. yes. Spark plugs. How to gap a spark plug and, and mount it properly. Spark plugs. Well, in, in some bikes, that's going to be quite a job. That's a major job. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would worry about it much with today's motorcycles. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You, you could probably mm -hmm. run, well, you definitely, you could run your entire trip and never change your plug on some bikes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not Sam's because bike, I, but. Because I like to fly underneath the radar um, in countries as far as the law is concerned, um, knowing how to change your light bulbs, um, yeah. that stops you getting picked up by the cops and it's such a simple thing to do on so many bikes it's well worth learning how to do and there's some bikes yeah. it's a real major pain in the neck too so you really case, need to know how to do go it go on that bike yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good point and that goes back to who said it about knowing your bike and it was brian 
Yeah, absolutely. You should really know about it. I used to teach a night school class for uh, people to learn basic motorcycle mechanics. And it was amazing how bad some people were. And that's where my comment about some people shouldn't be allowed to touch motorcycles. Yeah, I had one guy that took my class three times in a row. And, and at the end of it, you know, we kind of agreed. Yeah, you know, maybe I really shouldn't be working on my bike. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> if, he could, if it could be done wrong, he did it wrong, no matter what. No matter how many times he was shown, no matter how many times I held his hand and showed him what to do and what it feels like, he got it wrong. It was just amazing. Some people Grant, just I, know. I think you're a real gentleman for not mentioning my name here. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Moving rapidly on from that, one thing that we always do carry is a decent sized workshop manual. And I know yeah. you can download it to your computer and all of that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, if you break down and you've got a paper copy and you can't fix it, you can't work it out for yourself, one with good, really good diagrams in it, um, taking it to a local bike shop or whatever, um, the best you can find to being able to show how the thing works with these diagrams, even if they can't read the language, um, yeah. that can be a huge help. Yeah, and we carry a climber that works for both of our bikes, and this thing weighs an absolute ton, but oh, that weight's well worth it. Yeah, and you can actually read it and sort of gesture and point and kind of give them the idea of what it is and maybe translate a few of the words if you speak some of the local language so you can help them figure it out. Uh, but I was going to mention uh, Peter and Kay Forward are a really good example here. Peter will admit that he knew nothing about motorcycles whatsoever and Kay didn't know anything either, but they carry a really good Harley-Davidson shop manual with them. Kay reads the manual and tells Peter what to do. It works great. <laughs> Well, that's what a woman does, isn't it? Tells a man what to do. <laughs> oh, no. Here we go. My <laughs> <laughs> lips are tightly so, sealed. <laughs> oh, depends sorry, with your girlfriend's Shirley, name, can you tell him, please? <laughs> well, this is a topic that I just can't contribute to. My knowledge is you put petrol in motorbikes and they go. If they stop and they've still got petrol in them, they're broken. <laughs> well, that's, that's it. And that's a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was very interesting that Kay said that she knows absolutely nothing when they started, and that was like 15 years ago now, but after, I think, something like 400,000 kilometers on their Harley, or was it miles? It might have been miles even. Um, they've done everything on it, and they've been through the manual a million times, and they know how to do everything now. You know the bike inside out. Oh, yes. So the manual, everybody agrees that should be something that we should be taking with us, although we weren't really making a list of things to take. But So we've got the ability to plug or change your tire, the chain adjustment, cable adjustment, maybe spark plug change, definitely light bulb change. I think that that's definitely a good one. Um, and then and maybe you should be taking a manual with you. Anything else that would be on this list? I mean, this is, the, this is going to be the iconic list that we're going to put out here. Things to take? No, this, let's here? stay away from things to, to take. That could okay, go on forever. That's a whole, that These are just skills and, well, we were going to say skills and essential tools, but I mean, I, I think the tools will go along with these. Hmm. I mean, for me, I'm knowing how to change oil and air filter that makes um, and clean the air filter makes a huge amount of difference. You know, yeah. air um, filter, when you're yeah. overlanding, you're traveling a, a lot of time, a lot of time in um, in dusty places. And um, if you want your, it, this is part of the preventative medicine thing. Um, if you if you change your oil more often than you need to, and you change your oil filter, and you do you keep your air filter clean, you can stop all sorts of rubbish happening to your bike, and that means that you don't have to be a super duper mechanic if you do those things, and they are 
in many bikes quite straightforward but hey listen i'm an old bike boy so um i don't know about newfangled things <laughs> yeah i'm a big oh, fan oh, of changing air filters especially um not changing them but but washing them i use uh, washable foam filters never use paper haven't yeah. used papers oh, it's been 40 years since i last used a paper filter yeah same same it's a that's a, a thing that you should put on your bike before you leave actually is a is a good reusable filter and know yeah. how to clean it and put it back yeah and i'll throw in a little other little tidbit not a k&n filter i know a lot of people love mm-hmm. k&n filters they're wonderful uh, for street bikes but as soon as you go off road forget it um K&N used to, and I don't know if they still do, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, but at one point they were sponsoring bikes or b- bikes and cars for the Baja 1000. And all the cars and bikes were using K&N filters, but what nobody mentioned was that there was a filter on top of the K&N. And you can get in touch with Grant at this email address. <laughs> <laughs> so there goes that sponsorship out the window. Too. That's right. Forget it. I don't think KNN's going to be helping me any. I am two not months, a fan. Two months of negotiations gone, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's good foam filters. They're washable. Uh, I used to carry a film can full of foam filter oil, and that would do me two washes, two cleans. And you can also just use ordinary motor oil. That will work fine. Wash it in gasoline first and then wash it with soap and water. Let it dry. A little bit of oil. Squeeze all of it out as best you possibly can. Stick it in and run it. So you've trashed K&N. Who's good? Um, Any of the foam filter manufacturers. They're all good. Unifilter is excellent. Um, Touratech makes one for the 1200 GS that I've got in my bike, which is really nice, very slick. And they've got an extra sock that goes on the, the long pipe that comes out and sucks up all the water. Um, there's a sock that they put on that as well to keep really keep the dust out. And that's why you pay the big bucks. So you buy Touratech, you get a sock with your filter. That's right, yeah. you do. You, can't, you, can't you actually get two socks, so you can swap them. That's really cool. <laughs> well, socks come in pairs. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's got to be a pair. <laughs> Anything else going on this list? Are we cutting it off at number yeah, seven? Yeah, can, can I just go to tools for a moment? Yeah. Um, when I set off, I had the BMW um, toolkit with the bike, and most of the spanners I've never used. Um, there are certain spanners that you'll use fairly regularly, so talk to an experienced mechanic and find out what those spanner sizes are or, or i would say i would say even better sam is to actually do your bike maintenance before you're going anywhere all the time with the tools you have in your toolkit i think we probably all do that yeah for sure one thing that i was taught was to uh, put a piece of tape on all your tools and then start working on the bike and every time you use a tool take the tape off and eventually you'll have a few pieces of tools with tape still on them and you mm. say right don't need them yep, yep that's that's, that's that's what i was trying to get at um because yeah, I mean, you keep the weight down, and um, the chances are those unusual tools. Well, you'll find a workshop who's got them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I think that th- that is the definitive list. Then I, I'm going to have to um, get that in our show notes so that anyone can go to that and see the definitive list from the group at ARR Raw. There of seven things that you should your seven basics, I guess. Yeah. Probably going to catch some flack for this. I'm sure there's something left out. On to um, to wildlife. The dangers are not so dangerous of wildlife. You know, this is something that, that I've dealt with. I mean, I've been camping since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. The outdoors is a, has always been my main thing in life. 
And and taking people out guiding trips uh, with people, I've I've always been curious of the uh, paranoia people have of wild animals, and because quite often, in most cases, I find wild animals are not a concern, but. Let's. There are different countries that people go to, and there's you know you can get stomped by a rhino or or an elephant, and and there's concerns there. So, how do we start this off? Anybody got a story to start this off with? Well, we have more <laughs> things that will kill you in Australia than any other country in the world. Yeah, but I hear that's a statistic. What, well, I had a couple of people out from Australia that were rangers from a remote park somewhere near Alice Springs or something. I think they were saying, yeah. and they were saying, you know what? That's true. That's just that's a stat. There's no doubt about it, and that's a bragging right, and and rightfully so. But. The fact of the matter is, you don't go through the bush being paranoid. You just no, be no. mindful, the same as you are no. anywhere here. They, she, yeah. I think that she was saying that, you know, you're going to walk through long grass. You would never walk through long grass without a stick, but that's it. Just a stick to brush the grass away ahead of time so that you're... Yeah, or, 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 you, make, or you make noise. You know, it, snakes don't like noise and uh, vibration. And so if you want to pad around in the middle of the night um, uh, with no shoes on, um, yeah, you, you, you run a risk, but yeah. Just knowing where you are, and but Australia is a perfect example. Should we be fearful? I mean, how do we how do we handle the whole thing? And, and I guess this really depends on your background as well, as far as your your comfort and your ability to, or your or at least your background knowledge of um, the outdoors and animals. Um, the only thing that I can really um, really sort of terrifies me is stinking hot day in the north of Australia, and you find a nice. Uh, um, mangrovey piece of water you want to go and, and jump in and, and, ha- and have a splash don't do it crocodiles you know, you're a food group you know just don't do it we've had um, tourists taken um, in places like that and you don't camp in the north up going up to Cape York don't camp near um, uh, bodies of water you camp at least 100 metres away because the crocodiles come out at night that brings up a very good point, though, of, of knowing where you're going. So how do, how do we find this out ahead of time? Uh, I think you're going to have to read up a bit on the area. I know for yeah. Europeans, um, British Columbia is, ooh, bears, terrifying. Yeah. That's, that's their biggest fear is bears. And it's well, not nearly we as scary as a crocodile. No. There's signage and you can get yeah. books when you arrive in Australia of what to do and what not to do and, like, don't leave your boots outside the tent if you're camping because mm. you might end up with some unattractive mm. spider inside it that won't take kindly to you putting your foot inside it. Um, and when we were in, in Canada with the bears, everywhere we stayed there were signs saying, you know, if you see a bear, return to your vehicle, which is fine if you have a vehicle you can get into. <laughs> and also we were, we were told... To, um, to bang our saucepan lids if a bear came into our camp, which wouldn't helpful if we'd had saucepans. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you retreated to the bike and you were banging plastic bags together. <laughs> Correctly. That's how we did it. <laughs> Honk your horn. I just, yeah, I just have to run faster than Shirley. That's okay. <laughs> I think most animals are more afraid of us than we are of them. I mean, there are some um, yeah. notable exceptions. Um, particularly if we're doing things that are going to tempt them in our direction. But as Shirley said, you know, a lot of it's basic stuff like, you know, using common sense. It's again, it comes down to that res- that word respect, doesn't it? Respect the fact that you're in an environment that you don't know and you're dealing with things that you don't understand and you're not used to. And it's, you know, your boots, that's a perfect one. 
um, never ever put your boots on before checking what's inside them. Give them a good mm. shake, and I still do that here. I get <laughs> funny looks, but um, I still do it. It's just become completely ingrained. And you know, you sometimes you're just going to be lucky and get away with something that you shouldn't have done. I remember one time in Kenya, I was in the Masai Mara and I was camping um, right on the outs on the edge of one of these posh paka safari villages, you know, where you've got these um, really swank static tents and everything was full. Um, not that I could have afforded it anyway. And they said to me, I'll just camp on the outskirts of the village. So I did. Um, I suppose I was about half a mile away from the river. When I woke up in the morning, my little green tent, all of the grass around me was completely flattened and I was surrounded <laughs> by bow droppings. <laughs> with hippo drops killed more vehicle and more people in Africa than anything else does. Yeah. Um, so yeah. perhaps in that instance it was my socks that saved me because I hadn't had the <laughs> You know, I'll tell you as as far as animal problems in in North America and certainly Canada, the biggest and, and this is from experience from guiding lots of trips and being out there, the the biggest problem or or the most common problems you have with animals is when you're at an area that is frequented. So if you're in a, in a spot where a lot of people camp like if you're in bear country and you're in a spot where a lot of people camp and have camped there before you, there is a good chance that um, you may see animals around. And it's strictly because they come around for the food. There's bits of food. If someone camps in an area regularly, bits of food get dropped all the time. And of course, the ground never gets swept up. The mice will come like crazy, which is the that's the number one animal uh, that we have a problem with. Uh, just for, as a nuisance and, and uh, tearing holes through things to get in at food. But you got to expect if you're camping in an area that's popular, it's popular most likely for the wildlife. And if you're camping in an area where it looks like it's hardly ever used, your chances are far less um, of running into wildlife. Yeah, I always like the remoter, the better. Yeah, I, I hate public campgrounds. I'd much rather camp in the wild bush. It's much safer. Yeah. I, I, look, I think the most dangerous thing for motorcyclists is um, uh, animals on the road. Yep, much more dangerous uh, much than more when dangerous you're camping. Than camping. Uh, and knowing, like in Australia, kangaroos uh, morning and evening, uh, if you want to get up and get an early start, be very, very aware. That's when kangaroos feed. During the middle of the day, not so much because it's hot. Things like that. And local knowledge on those issues is really important. I think the same goes with bears and um, moose and all those sorts of things that you've got up in the wilds of Canada there, guys. Yeah, lots when, of deer. Yeah. When you guys yeah, go yeah. somewhere, do you look ahead of time? Like like Shirley and Brian, when you guys went uh, to into Russia, uh, did you look ahead of time and see what the deal was with local animals and wildlife you'd have to deal with? Um, I tried to do some reading on that, but I believe they've hunted them all out. There are bears still in Siberia, but I don't think you're going to see them meandering along the road. But, um, yeah, we check things like that out, um, mainly because I just want to see them. I love seeing the, the different animals in all the different countries, but certainly you don't want to see them in front of the bike when you're doing 100 kilometres an hour down a highway. I, I, the, the, the one that you mentioned, deer, is probably the most uh, unpredictable, uh, jumping each, every which way they are, and uh, they're very quick. Very quick. Um, I've actually had um, one jump right over me. Whoa. Lucky. Yeah, that was pretty scary. We, there was a and herd of there several of us riding, and a herd came from the side, like three or four deer, and yeah. one went in between, and I saw one go right over top of me. And wow. that, that was very, very, very scary. 
And, and the things I remember with deer is that if there's one, there's likely more. So if you spot yeah, yeah. one on the side of the road, you know that there's going to be more around. And the other thing too is that, that I often find is they usually run in the direction they're facing. So if they're facing the road, then you want to really be careful as you come up because if they decide to bolt at the last minute, that's where they're going to run, in the direction they're facing. Not very often yeah. do they spin around and run in the opposite direction. The other thing I've heard about deer from experts is that they will run to where they can go the fastest. In other words, the road is wide open. They can go fast. The bush, they can, they, they're going to be slower. Yeah. So they will often run into the road because they can go quicker. Yeah. And that's yeah. their instinct. And a lot of animals are like that. You know, I've, I've come up behind animals before, like even rabbits. They will continually, even though they'll run zigzag to trying to, to do a, a safety pattern for themselves, they'll actually run continuously down the road in front of you. And of course, anyone who, who comes along that situation, I, mean, I think they would know in advance, but don't keep following the animal because you're going to run it to death. <laughs> Obviously, stop and let the animal find a way off the road. Yeah, I had that experience with a bear way back when. I was about 17 out in the bush riding along on my bike, and this bear bolted out of the bush and kept running down the road. And I kind of followed it and kept thinking, your, your, the bear's going to turn off. It's not going to be a problem. So I just kept following. And he kept running down the road. Obviously, he decided that going to the side was not fast enough. So he kept running down the road. Eventually, I clued in. And I mean, I was 17. I clued in and stopped. And he just immediately turned into the bushes. So you barely made it then, Grant. <laughs> hey, Sam, what, what sort of issues have you got over in uh, the UK, mate? Uh, wild badgers or? Deer oh, badgers, they're with? dangerous creatures. Ooh, very, very dodgy. I tell you, it's the black and white stripes, you know. It's very confusing to the eye, especially for motorcycling. Now, deer are an issue here. Um, um, you know, you, but gosh, I, you know, I've, I've only ever seen um, dead deer by the side of the road. I did kill a car with one that landed on the bonnet once, but that fortunately wasn't a motorcycle. You do hear yeah. people, um, but you know what? What, um, what you said, Jim, about um, do, do you read up on the animals before you go into a new country? Yeah, well, why not? Why would you not? Because that's part of the joy of traveling, isn't it? Seeing, get learning yeah. about the the different animals and so on that you're going to see in a, in a country. It's like learning yeah. about the food and mm -hmm. the weather patterns and the witch doctors, if they're appropriate, or whatever else it might be. Learning about the animals is just a, um, an awesome thing to do. Mm. What yeah. a great point. Even local knowledge, crossing the Nullarbor in Australia, you know, it's big, vast, open pla open plains that you can see for miles. When you're on a motorbike, you look down the side of the road, quite often you'll see emus uh, pecking along in the grass where the, the rain runs off the road and there's more grass in that area. You would not see that in a car. And uh, there's one place on the Nullarbor plain where um, there's always kangaroos there, always. And uh, I can remember we were coming back on one trip with a group of us and there was a guy that we bumped into at a service station on a guzzy and he said, oh, I'm going to go all the way through to Adelaide nonstop through to day, the night and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, well, good on you, mate. You know, we're not going to do that. We're stopping, we're stopping at um, um, wherever it was, Euclid, I think. And we got into there you know, before dusk, before the animals come out and we're sitting there having a quiet beer and next thing, he trundled in behind us, his eyes sticking out of his head. He said, I could not get above 40 kilometres an hour because of all the kangaroos jumping across in front of me in the dark. He said, that's it, I'm staying here. Uh, yeah. So just a bit of local knowledge about the area you're travelling in. You might think it's safe, but, you know, there's times of day when you shouldn't be on the road. I agree, and I think... Um 
you know, getting the local knowledge about how to deal with creatures that you do come across. Birgit and I uh, were in um, Namibia and um, some elephant just walks across the road in front of us and stood there. And mum, she was a right old matriarch, a huge creature, massive ears, and she just sort of stood and faced us down and flapping her ears. And we'd been told that that is a sign that things are about to get really hairy. She's not happy at all that you're there. So what do you do? Well, we were told if you can't turn around and just gently ease on out of there, then just sit very quietly. Mm. Don't move, Mm. but don't turn your engine off. Um, you do need to be able to get out in a hurry if if you can. But also the key was, if you turn your engine off, then you're making something very dramatically different happening to to an elephant's ears. So you just keep things very calm and very patient, and hopefully she'll get bored and disappear. And that's exactly what happened. So we were really glad that we'd asked the question um, before we found ourselves in that situation. Where do you find the local knowledge? Online, online nowadays, but ask the locals. <laughs> yeah. You stop in a restaurant everywhere, mm-hmm. talk to anybody. Getting gas, talk to the guy. Well. Yeah, because it's important to understand, isn't it? What like th- That example you just gave, Sam, was perfect because you need to know how to handle the situation. I mean, it's like people when they run into a bear, you know, they, they don't know whether they're supposed to play dead, you know, or they're supposed to fight the bear. And, and of course, that depends on what kind of bear it is. But you need to know that stuff. You need to be able to find that out ahead of time. I don't know as just asking somebody on the side of the road is always the best because quite often there's a couple of things that happen is that people who are local to an area tend to over-exaggerate the dangers of something. To and, tourists. To tourists, yes, <laughs> yes. definitely. <laughs> like, oh, that's really, really bad, you know. And the other thing that happens is there's a lot of, um, you know, folklore that goes around that is that tends to be... I don't know, uh, colored to say the least, maybe in some cases completely wrong. So I, I like the idea that Sam said about researching it. That's part of the fun, right? Don't research it just to be fearful of animals. Research it also, or mainly, to find out what you can enjoy about them. And then in doing so, find out what the, the traits are and find out what the safety uh, um, things are that you should know about the animals of the area. I couldn't wait to get to Canada to see the bears. <laughs> we were that was my great desire. And we stayed in a little uh, hotel. Uh, it's where was that Skagway? Um, no, in Hyder, uh, in Alaska. That's right. And the the late, we had some food on the bike, and we we're going to our little room in in this hotel. And uh, Shirley said, uh, "Should we leave the food on the bike?" And the lady said, "Oh no, don't leave food on the bike. You should see what bears do to panniers. They just rip them apart. You can see the smell <laughs> of food in them." Yeah, for sure. So we dutifully took our panniers off and took them uh, to our room. Sam, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, do you have zebra crossings in Canada? (laughs) I haven't seen that. I don't think they're here in British Columbia. (laughs) They do in Kenya. Herds of them. They run straight across the road in front of you. You know, we do have deer crossing signs, though, and and moose crossing, elk crossing signs, and it's uh, it's rather interesting going along the the road and seeing the sign, you know, elk crossing for the next seven kilometers. You're thinking, really, is there another sign in the bush that says elk this way? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, of course they're going well, by you patterns. You do have overpasses over your freeways for uh, animals to cross over, which I find yeah, very interesting. As well. yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, That's uh, coming with the, the modern age of understanding wildlife and the fact that we actually want to keep some of it around. Well, yeah. there's entirely yeah. too many animals out there crossing the road, and people die as a result of animals crossing the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't do a lot of good for the animals either. 
No. No, I, I was going to say it's, it's almost good because if people didn't die when the animals are getting hit on the road, then nobody would care and they would still mm. be getting hit on the road. Good yeah. point, Jim. It's unfortunate and I, I know it's a sick view, but... So, yeah. so the the last thing with this is, do you carry, or would you suggest anyone carry any tools or things that they would use for defense or dealing with an animal? Like, for instance, when you ran in with the elephant, uh, Sam, <laughs> would uh, uh, elephant spray have helped for that situation? <laughs> nope. Saucepan <laughs> no, meat would be a... helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and bear spray uh, in Canada. I thought yeah, bear spray go was illegal. Here. No, I not at all. They... No? You can't carry. You cannot carry bear spray across the border. You cannot use it as a weapon against a human being. But if you are in bear country and you have a can of bear spray, it's absolutely legal and highly recommended that you carry it. One little tip okay. about it, though, is um, I remember when I first heard about bear spray, I thought, "Oh, this is cool. I'll spray it around my campsite, and that'll keep the bears away." <laughs> Dead wrong. <laughs> it is absolutely <laughs> the worst thing you can do because after it's dissipated a little bit, they're very curious and they like the smell. Really? It's not a preventive. It's a, when the bear is three feet in front of you, spray it in his nose. Otherwise, don't use it. Yeah, and you have to be careful of wind direction. That's a big thing. And, and also when you spray it, if you were to spray a bear and the bear tries to maul you, you're going to be covered in this spray that's going to make it seeing impossible and, and, and create all kinds of havoc. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of problems that go along with bear spray. A lot of times people, I think it's the same as any weapon, you know, people get a weapon on them and they, it completely changes their demeanor and their approach to wildlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they yep. use it. They yep. say, well, I'm safe. I've got bear spray. I'm yeah, fine. Exactly. No, you're not. It's yeah. last ditch desperate. Yeah, definitely. Try and prevent any interaction with the bears. Make noise. Make uh, sure they know you're there. I don't know. Bear if a bear was three feet in front of me, my hand would be steady enough. <laughs> to use a can of bear spray. Well, that's a big thing. And a lot of people say it with, with grizzly bears um, because grizzly bears, black bears, what happens is black bears, they tend to always take off. It has to do with the way they've evolved. Black bears will always take off into the bush. If a black bear comes towards you and starts getting aggressive, you have to fight that bear because black bears will eat you while you lay there and pretend you're dead. Grizzly bears, however, they evolve in a more open area. So if you have an encounter with the grizzly, you best play dead because it just wants to make sure you're not a threat. So it's, it's, it's important to know the difference between those bears uh, if you're in bear country. And they can both be in the same spot, too. So what's the difference between a brown bear and a black bear? Well, the brown bear is is um, can be both in a black bear and a grizzly. They can both be brown. Um, but usually a brown bear is a grizzly bear. So it's They're just the bad. tuft on the back of the neck that that says this is a grizzly. Yeah, that'd yeah. be handy. The face. And grizzlies are a lot generally a lot bigger than black bears too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And if you see a really 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 big bear and it's really terrifying, and I've seen bear um, feet footprints that are about ten inches long and longer. So they're not small bears. They'll tower above you. A grizzly, when it stands oh, yeah. up, just towers above you. They're, they're absolutely huge. Terrifying, really. And, and that's what I was going to say, Shirley, is that um, people talk about, you know, they have a gun with them and they'll just shoot the bear. But from people <laughs> who have actually tried to shoot a bear that's charging at they're saying, you think you're going to get, you know, a few shots. You'll be lucky if you get one shot off and you're terrified the entire time and your chance of hitting this bear that's barreling down towards you is so slim. Yeah. And you're just going to make the bear angry. In a lot of cases, Angrier. yeah. Unless you <laughs> yeah. hit it right. Yeah, the only way you're going to get it is straight through the eye, and I don't think anybody's good enough for that. So, picks and plugs for today. Um, what do we have for picks, starting with Sam? 
Oh, starting with me. Right, picks. Um, I came across something called the Gator Grip, and I came across it for the first time at the Manchester Bike Show, which um, uh, listeners may well remember from the last Roar, and um, this gives me a chance to say thank you to Jim and Graham for the mention, because you remember I wasn't here, and so therefore I wasn't able to do it myself. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I came across the Gator Grip up there. Um, uh, a chap called Gordon May, who's an overlander, um, a fan of classic bikes and a travel book author, was selling them, and I was intrigued. I said to him, well, what on earth is this? It's a multi-purpose socket. And he explained to me that it's just a simply amazingly wonderful bit of kit for overlanding because it cuts down on the number of spanners and sockets you need to carry, and it's absolutely brilliant for, when, uh, for using when you round off nuts or bolts, which, of course, on the long road, it... it it can happen from time to time you know it may well be that you mangle the end of a nut or a bolt up against a rock or something like that and this thing is is fiendishly cunningly designed so that um it'll fit um nuts and bolts from a quarter to three quarter or in english language um seven to 19 mils and it runs off a three eight socket drive and i just think well what a fantastic bit of kit so i bought one and i am totally impressed with it um they're around a tenner, so about fourteen quid, but uh, fourteen dollars. But you can find them for less if you hunt around. And um, yeah, it's absolutely superb. But a kit, a gator grip. That's neat. I've seen similar things. That always makes me think of a, a fishing plug I bought at a show that was supposed to do everything: go over logs, and not get hooked. And but does your and, and it didn't work, by the way. Does yours actually work? Did you try it? It does. Yeah, I have tried it. It it works phenomenally well. I'm completely impressed. How is it made? Um, it's the outside of it. It's very much like a, a standard socket, um, but inside you've got um, a whole load of um, what look like needle bearings. Mm. So uh, you put you push this down over the top of uh, the nut or bolt head, and um, the ones that fit around the edge fit up snugly to it. And because they're all round, they grip every single bit of the surface that you can get at. The ones that are the size of um, the nut or bolt. Um, just push out of the way down into the socket. And that's one of the reasons it works so well with um, rounded off nuts and bolts. So they'd be on little ramps and, and rolling back and forth. That, that's neat. That, that could be a, a real saver for you if you're stuck one time. Like you said, even just round it off from a, from hitting a rock or skidding on the road or whatever happens. Yep. No, I'm, I'm impressed. I, w I was quite surprised by this. I'm usually I'm pretty cynical about things like this that are all singing and dancing. But <laughs> actually, no, this, this, this is a good bit of kit. So, yeah, my pick, mm. a gator grip. Nice. Sounds cool. Shirley and Brian, are you, are you doing yours together or separate? Mm, I don't have one, so it has to be Brian. <laughs> oh, I think we'll do ours together. <laughs> Thanks for it. it. Shirley yes, gave it away already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, We've got a company down here called Andy Straps. Now, Andy um, crea started creating soft bags. Now, his soft bags are waterproof, and if anyone's coming to Australia and you don't have to bring all your gear with you, I thoroughly recommend you look up Andy Straps because his gear is very, very well made. We've used his gear all over all over the world, uh, stuff that's it's at least um, a dozen years old and is still waterproof. Um, he has everything. He stocks everything from... Uh, handmade um, uh, sock bags like that to um, former boots to the essential item for women, she-wees, all that sort of stuff. But seriously, his um, soft bags are really good gear. 
And if you want to come to Australia and you get a little bike, you don't really need hard panniers. I'd recommend you go and see Andy and get some um, good soft bags off him. Andy Straps, that's his name, right? That's his, uh, well, his, his name's actually Andy White, but his, his trading name is Andy Straps, S-T-R-A-P-Z. Okay, I thought you were going to talk about straps. That's why I asked. <laughs> nah, well, that's how he started. He started making elastic webbing straps, which had Velcro. And uh, I use those. And they, they're really good. They grip uh, better and they don't have uh, sharp points like uh, Oki straps and things like that, uh, the elastic straps. Uh, he started making those and he's expanded into making soft bags. And um, they're a good, cheap alternative for someone who wants to travel light. He, he has lots of little things, Jim, that like bags that you can put on the bar of your bike that you can tuck, you know, your phone in or, you know, spare cash or whatever. He has lots of little knick-knacky kind of bags. It's, it's a really good place to have a look at. Last I, last I heard he was trying to break into the uh, North American market and I'm not sure if he's got a supplier over there, but I, I think he has. I should ask him and let you know, Jim. He's yeah. got an online store. Does he do a waterproof tank bag? Yes. Yes. Does yes. he? Yeah. The oh. only things of ours that are waterproof are Andy Straps bags. Right. I, I need to have a look because I want one that I can put my, my camera in and my paperwork in and yeah. that sort of stuff. So I don't want a big one. Ideally, I would like one with, you know, a plastic sleeve on the top so that I can put a map in it and see it. But I want it to be waterproof. I don't want to have to dick around with covers and all of the rest of it. And, you know, Andy will make something make for you if um, if he doesn't have it. He's very obliging to sort of fit into um, what motorcycle travellers need. He's a rider himself but never gets any time to go riding now because his business is so successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a nice but sad story too, isn't it? When somebody does that. Entirely too common. Yeah. I was going to mention Giant Loop also makes um, tank bags. And yeah, I'm slightly biased. They they sponsor the Adventure Rider Radio Show or one of the sponsors. Um, but they make uh, waterproof tank bags. Really In good stuff. In that case, I stuff. need to check them out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They've got some good stuff too. Yeah, I've seen both the Andy Straps and uh, Giant Loop stuff. And I can certainly put my compliment or compliments to them on both of them. They're both excellent kit. So Grant, what do you have for a pick? I've got a little bit different one. This this kind of flies in the face of our last discussion about uh, sophisticated gadgets like GPS and satellite trackers mm-hmm. can make you overconfident about adventure traveling. So at the risk of sounding like I'm doing 180 on my position about knowing where you are at all times, this seemed interesting enough to, to at least mention. Um, our event partner for the HUM Spain, which is coming up. I can't even remember now. It's October. Uh, they told us about a new app because we've been talking about using spot trackers. And they said there's a free downloadable app that simulates a satellite tracker like Spot. Uh, it's been running in Spain for the last few years and is now available for iPhones, Android, BlackBerry, etc. cetera. Um, and it's free. And they're rolling it out to more locations all the time. And it works by making your precise geolocation available to the 112 emergency services. And it can track your route. And the neat thing is it doesn't work even when you don't, it works even when you don't have an internet or data connection by sending an SMS message and tapping into the local phone system. Even if you don't have the correct SIM card, it still works. Um, I don't know how it works exactly, but apparently it works all over Spain. It's in France and Andorra and ski resorts worldwide. It's in Argentina of all places, but it's not in North America yet or UK. Um, we're not endorsing this for worldwide travel since it only works in a few areas, but if it does work, 
it's great. It's, it might encourage misadventures closer to home without having to shell out a ton of money for satellite trackers and the necessary subscriptions that can get expensive. Yeah, so, that sounds really neat. Now, you said it sends out a, a text message even if you're not on the system. Now, that's one thing a lot of people don't realize that the, the phones, when they're searching, they'll actually, they can, they can see the other systems there. They just don't recognize it. But was that only for an emergency or, or is that just a check-in? No, it's an emergency system, but it also tracks you. Mm. So it's, it's very interesting. Just go to alpify.com, A-L-P-I-F-Y.com, and it's a, it's a free app. I mean, how can you go wrong? Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Well, the potential for that is huge. That, that yeah. I mean, obviously, you need cell service for it. Um, so it's it's not. There quite needs to be some cell service. Yes, yeah. there needs to be something. Yeah. But uh, it's getting to the point where just about every road is going to be covered with cell in the next few years, and they are expanding this and rolling it out worldwide. Is the plan? Mm, that's really neat. Uh, well, my pick is is not necessarily an item in particular. I was going to say about the one that I have, but I, I, I couldn't find it. But it's a camp stove. Now, the camp stove um, is not new, of course, nor is this style, but this is a wood-burning camp stove. And I don't know if you've seen them. I think this one, the, the one I have is called the Magic Flame or something like that, or Magic Camp Stove. But basically all these are, and there's a whole bunch of them on the market, is um, a, a stove that's made of stamped stainless steel. And they usually fold up or they come apart and you assemble them and they're really tiny. And I've been using one for quite some time now and I use it a lot. It's really amazing how much heat you can get out of a tiny stove with only a little bit of wood. And quite often what I do is my, my little experiment is I, I just use the wood around where I'm sitting. So I'll pick up little bits of garbage wood that are broken up around a campsite and throw them into the stove. And I can end up boiling my water, cooking my meal all on this thing. And the nice thing about it is you're not worrying about a fuel bottle. You don't have to pump up the fuel. Um, it folds up. This one in particular folds up about the size of your palm of your hand, or not the palm, the, the, your whole hand, and about um, maybe an inch thick. So it's it, it's very small, very compact, and there's no moving parts in it. You don't have to worry about it plugging or you know not working for you as long as you have some dry wood there. So. You, you can find them at REI, you can find them at um, MEC or any, any outdoor store, I think. And if you just search for compact or folding uh, camp uh, wood stove, I think you'll, you'll find them. Yeah. Did you know you can also make them yourselves out of a tin can? Of course, yeah. yeah at, we actually had a guy at one of our meetings here, a Can West meeting, uh, did a demo and had a whole bunch of people making tin can wood, wood stoves. And we tested them out and they worked great. There's something about a simple stove. You know, we, even you, you see the ones that make people take beer cans and they make them into alcohol burners. Um, even that, there's, there's just something about a simple stove um, that, that is really neat. Although the alcohol burner, the problem is you got to carry alcohol. And I mean, there's all kinds yeah. of problems that go with it. But, but I, I like the wood stove one because, you know, in a lot of cases, there's tons of wood sitting around. You get the nice campfire thing. You can sit there and you can warm your hands and, uh, and cook your meal on it. Of course, there's downsides. There's tons of downsides, like not, control, not being able to control the heat really well and, and, thing, and dealing with the smoke, et cetera, and the blackened pots. But I'll give you a tip. For, bla for blackened pots, if you're going to cook on a wood stove, if you cover your pot ahead of time with a bit of liquid soap and, uh, and just leave it on there, it makes it a lot easier to clean off afterwards. And then when your, stand, your stove is covered in, in soot, you just wrap a rag around it and shove it into a stuff sack and, and leave it that way, even if you don't clean it off. But that's, yep. my, uh, that's my pick. Onward, that's onward to plugs. Um, Sam, what do you have for a plug today? Haha, <laughs> right, is everybody sitting comfortably? Um, <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> okay, good. I have got a really busy time about to start happening in the United States. Um, 
in the middle of May, I'm flying out for seven weeks and I'm going to be riding Arizona and um, Southern California on an Al Jesse BMW 800 GS, which is going to feel really strange because, of course, um, I'm used to riding Libby and not a lot of other things. But um, that's going to be quite exciting. I'm looking forward to that. But I'm flying out for Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, which is on between May 20th and 22nd. And I'm doing a whole load of presentations um, on Vietnam and Norway and classes on sponsorship and travel on the cheap and getting your book published and all sorts of um, other hot travel topics. And uh, some of the panels that I'm going to be on with those last ones are going to be with such people as Ted Simon and Simon and Lisa Thomas and so on. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a buzz. But um, then I'm going on and I'm doing some other events. I'm, I'm going on to the BMW 49er Rally in Mariposa in California, and that's on between the 26th and 29th, doing a presentation there. And then I'm going down to San Diego BMW for June 9th, doing a presentation there. And then I'm on up to um, Santa Clarita BMW for June the 11th. And... Um, and I should be going to Riverside BMW as well in June. And then the rest of the time, I am riding and exploring, and I can't wait. I'm really excited to be getting back into the States again. Wow, that is neat. You got a, a real good vac or sorry, work uh, session coming up. <laughs> it's just, just going to be a really busy, buzzy time. And, you know, I'm going to spend seven weeks surrounded by great people who are travel fanatics and awesome scenery and i can't think of a better combination uh, are you going to come to canada not this time mm-hmm. keep tempting me Too next bad. year next year we'll get that you up sounds here like a plan. <laughs> uh, good on you sam it's great well that is really neat. and you're going to give us those dates so we can put them in the show notes so if anyone wants to check and see what events you're at and are you open to any other events sam on this list um, if anybody wants to invite me, all right. So if somebody, if there's a if there's a space in here and somebody wants to get you on, there's a possibility they could get a hold of you and, and get you to come and and talk with their group. Yep, give me a shout. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good, Grant. What do you have for a, a plug today? Oh, we've got a whole host of events. We've opened up all but one of our events. I think is finally open for registration. Uh, we've got twenty events this year worldwide. The only continent we're not on this year is Antarctica. We have actually had an Antarctica meeting, but that was a few years ago. Uh, so we now, got lots what's happening. The, what's the problem with Antarctica? Is it just a lousy turnout? Yeah, <laughs> uh, turnout's not very good. I think we had two. So, <laughs> the so the, it went kind of cold, I guess you could say. Yeah, just a little cold, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too hard to get there. <laughs> so we've got lots of other stuff. Um, hum Spain. For those in uh, the UK especially and all over Europe, the Hum Spain event will be opening up shortly. It's October 17 to 20. We want to make sure everybody gets that in their diaries. That's a great event. And great video that you have on that one. That's a, that's, that looks like a really neat event. Oh, yeah. It's, it's such a People absolutely rave about the event after they've ridden it. It's just great. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that one. Um, Hum Rockies, of course, is booked up solid. We're taking people. We've got about 20 people on the waiting list already uh, trying to get into that one. Uh, but the rest of the events, we're open for registration. Virginia is coming up in a couple of weeks. So we'll be there. And then we've got Germany, Ontario, Hub UK. is. We were in a fantastic new location this year, which I think everybody's yeah, going to awesome. love. Uh, it, it's such a good location. And we're going to be doing a lot of rider training. Registration opens for that in a couple of days. Where is that? You're saying at a new location? 
You've heard of Baskerville, the Hound of the Baskervilles? Oh, right. We talked about this, yeah. This place is Baskerville Hall, which is what that story was centered around. Oh, that's really neat. So yeah. where do you do the, the um, riding then? Is there, a, is there a court or something there? They've got a huge field. We can put four or 500 tents in the field. There's an off-road riding section adjacent to it, specifically for rider training. We've got a little nasty little gnarly bit of stuff for playing on some serious dirt bikes. There's bush up behind for going off-road riding. It's fantastic. Who's and doing the rider training? A, we've got uh, Ramey Coach Stroud, who a lot of North Americans will know well. And we've got um, Lee Walters from the UK, who's a former British Enduro champion and trainer for uh, Dakar riders and so forth. So we'll have, those are the two lead trainers and we'll have some others as well. So there'll be a whole range of riding uh, from beginners to advanced riders. We'll have lots going on. That sounds so, good. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's Sam, gonna you're going to be there? No, I'm going to be in the States. Um, when Grant and Susan announced the date, unfortunately, I was already booked to be over. Otherwise, for sure, I would have been oh, there. Wow. Do you know, this will be um, uh, the 15th, um, 15th um, yeah. Hub UK, and I will have missed two this mm. year being... Um, no, I'll miss three, so this year three. being the third. And Grant, you don't have the date for this yet? Oh, yeah, of course. It's all open for registration. We've got hundreds of people already booked. That's June 16 to 19. Oh, I see. And Ireland is the weekend after that. We'll be at both of those events. So if, if you make it to Hub UK, come and join us for a ride to Ireland. Um, Touratech is supplying us a bike so that we can actually ride from Hub UK to the Ireland event. And we will have a few days to ride around in Ireland. We're heading over to the West Coast and checking out Ireland. It's a fantastic, fantastic. riding over there. Oh, yeah. We're really looking forward to that. Um, after that, we've got the Colorado Hum Rockies. Can West in August, Montenegro. Unfortunately, we won't be able to get to Montenegro, although we'd really like to. Um, France, and then there's the Australian events. California, we'll be at that one. And Hum Spain and South Africa. We'll be in South Africa. So anybody in the Johannesburg area, come and join us. South Africa, November 3 to 6. Fantastic riding in that area. And North Carolina, oh yes, mustn't forget North Carolina. That's in October, first weekend in October. Beautiful time of year to be there. The leaves are turning color. It's absolutely gorgeous. I was there and, last year, and it was absolutely magic time of the of the year to be around there. Um, yeah. All of the, the the local roads and Tail of the Dragon and the the Parkway, just fantastic. Yeah, is that when you were riding? Amazing? Is that where you and you were riding around there, Sam? Mm. Yeah, it was. Nice. It's really good. Really good. Nice bunch of people there, too. Really nice. Yep. And then uh, Brian and Shirley are running the Australia Snowy Mountains inaugural event, November 18 to 20. Right. So are you coming to that one, Grant? I wish, but we're not <laughs> going to be able to make it. <laughs> it? Beautiful, beautiful riding country up through that high country. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I, we were there last year scouting out the location in a camper van. And you have no idea how painful that was. This slow, <laughs> overloaded camper van. It was horrible. And we were riding these absolutely spectacular roads, some of the best roads I've seen anywhere. And not it's a very beautiful part. Yeah, and, and it's not the sort of road that you expect. I mean, we lived in Australia for five years, but never got into that part of the country. And I was just blown away by how good the riding is. It's just spectacular. And you're going to be leaving the lunatics in charge of the asylum. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so when you guys are talking about a nice area to ride, are you talking about paved roads or dirt roads or the whole combination? Both. Yeah, Both. Everything. A whole lot, yeah. Oh, yeah, the right. paved roads are spectacular. It's just 
absolutely amazing and almost no traffic. I couldn't believe how little traffic there was. So November 18th to 20th, what what is happening at this one? Uh, the usual HU Travelers meetings. We've got all the goodies. There's going to be presentations, demos, technical sessions, how to use your GPS, how to go traveling, lots of inspirational talks. People yeah. like Brian and Shirley will be there talking about and their travels. We'd like to run a few forums, you know, so we get ideas off everybody. Everybody gets involved in it. That's what it's all about. And you know, HU's are great for that sort of thing. Yeah, lots of talks. One of the things we're doing a lot more of this year will be uh, roundtable sessions, we call them, where everybody can dig in and start talking about what they've learned and everybody can help everybody else rather than just learn from one person talking and yakking away at them. So there's going to be a lot more interaction. A lot of the events will also be doing rider training as well. Nice. Wow. Is that, is that your complete lineup? I think, well, I'm, oh, I missed Argentina December 3rd. This will be about the 13th Argentina Travelers Meeting. It's one of the longest running. I was wondering if you're going to do anything in December. I thought it looks kind of light year for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not going to all of the events. We, we'd really like to, but there's just no way we can get to all of them. There's two in Germany, one in uh, May, and the other one is in the autumn in October 29 for the Hardcore and what else have we got? Did I miss anything else? Perth. Mustn't forget Perth in September. Uh, France is their fourth event this year. So lots happening. Virtually no matter where you are in the world, there's something. Get okay. to an HU meeting. That was a lot of dates. Where can people go to see the list? Horizonsunlimited.com slash events. That's easy. Fantastic. Very oh, that's, easy. That's easy to it's find. all there. There's videos on there to tell you what's going on, give you a little idea about what's going on, and photographs and everything to help you out. And there, for, for those who have been listening to Brian and Shirley you want to meet them, November 18th to 20th, I think that's a great opportunity to go and, uh, and shake a hand. Oh, and we mustn't forget that Adventure Rider Radio is going to be at the event, August 25th to 28th Can West Traveler meeting and will be live from the meeting. Yeah, we're going to be recording this show right there in front of everybody and feeling the bright lights of the stage and the, the sweat that runs down us as we feel it. And I'm saying us because Grant's going to be there too. <laughs> <laughs> so at least we're too physically going to be there. Everybody else is going to be connected through the internet. But uh, it should be good fun. Does that mean we have to dress up? Yes. Do you have to put clothes on? Yeah. <laughs> well, if we can, and we have a good enough internet connection, we'll get a little bit of live video going back and forth between you. Yeah, that's. Uh, I would really like to do that. That would be neat because ultimately I, I would love to move in that direction, especially for this show. I think it'd be a lot of fun to do, but, but we do need a pretty good uh, internet connection. If it starts dropping out like crazy, that won't work. So at least you're going to have to wear a shirt, you know, <laughs> sitting at the table. Oh. Well, we'll we definitely be in our we'll be in our pajamas because it'll we'll, we'll be in the <laughs> outback in August and it'll be even earlier in the morning. I, I thought you were going to be Melbourne. complaining about the six. I thought that was where she was going to go again. I was going to say, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> six o'clock no, in the morning. It's, it's even earlier. <laughs> I'm just concerned about how, how this is going to affect my budget. It's going to cost me a hell of a lot for face powder so I can dull down the reflection <laughs> off my body. <laughs> we'll share the bill, Sam. <laughs> I'm not including that, Sam, just to be clear. <laughs> well, Brian and Shirley, what do you have for a plug today? Sure. Well, our plug is by way of a teaser. Um, the book on our trip uh, from 
Greece to Scandinavia through the Silk Road to Vladivostok is at the printers. And um, by the time we speak to you next month, it'll be available. So um, by way of a teaser, it's called The Long Way to Vladivostok and it's full of colour maps and colour photos and colourful stories. But um, anyone who's interested in travel, even if they don't want to go, they can sit in their lounge room and travel vicariously with us. So that will be available next month. So it's just a little teaser plug this month. And how can someone get it? Can you pre-order ah, it? Ah, that's, that's the plug that we'll be putting out next month. <laughs> so the teaser, I see. So you're just going to tell people about it. And, well, and- people can contact us um, through our webpage, aussiesoverland.com.au or our um, email address, which I'll give you, Jim, to put on the the links page Mm -hmm. and we can tell them where it'll be available. But at this stage, it's not available. So this is a plug by way of teaser. So you you said it's at the publisher or at the printer rather right now. So we're we're talking old fashioned style with on that. Uh, what do they keep forgetting what the stuff's called? Paper. It's it's called paper. Right. It's called no, I a got book. It. Book. That's it. That was <laughs> it, the word that was escaping it, me. So it it will also be available as an ebook. But um, we're old fashioned folk. We like to pick books up and flick through them and um, hold them in our hands. And uh, e readers are all well and good but you can cause awful problems to them if you fall asleep while you're reading in the bath. <laughs> but, but somehow that sounds, sounds like, like a story. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> well, at least it's not like a toaster. You're not going to get electrocuted, but you certainly aren't going to be reading the next day. <laughs> no, no, you're not going to be electrocuted. <laughs> so this book is about your last adventure. It is. It starts off when we got the bike to Greece and uh, there's a quick dash across um, across Europe into Scandinavia and then the real adventure begins when we're travelling through Scandinavia up to Nordcap and then down through Russia into um, the stands, back into Russia, into Mongolia, back into Russia and uh, finishing in Vladivostok with a ferry trip to Korea. So is this sort of a, a like a, a day-by-day account of the story, uh, of the trip, rather, or is it um, an expose on, you know, what Brian's really like behind the scenes, or how have you approached it? <laughs> well, it's it's certainly not a day-by-day account. It's, it's, a, it's a travel narrative. I mean, we, we do canvas the relationship side of traveling together, and um, the breakdowns with the bike, and uh, the places we go, and the people we meet, Um so it's, it's um, well, like Sam's books, it's a travel narrative. It takes you on the journey with us, we hope. We hope people enjoy it and will feel that they are travelling with us on the bike. So that's neat. So anybody who's actually even had any interest in travelling to the stands or Russia, um, that would be a, a good read for them then. Yeah, or if it's somewhere you don't want to go but you'd like to know about. Uh, it, it, yeah, we talk about in the hotels and the roads and the sites, the history the heat, the cold, the Aral Sea, uh, which uh, is a disgrace what's happened up there in the Aral Sea. But anyway, uh, you'll have to read about it. It'll be a good read. All right. Well, my uh, my plug for today, I think, is uh, is just for um, I, I was actually going to plug us being at um, at the uh, the Can West show. But um, I, I think I'll just <laughs> switch back over. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'll just switch back over and say uh, my plug would be Adventure Rider Radio. Um you know, it's a it's a weekly show, and I have the feeling if you're listening to this, you've probably already heard Adventure Rider Radio, but that's my plug, and that's www.adventureriderradio.com. And I, I guess I could throw in there, if somebody wants to, to come on board and, and become a sponsor for this show in particular, we would be interested in speaking with you. 
particularly those people with those air filters. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Now, if you listen to Adventure Rider Radio, you know that we don't accept just any company. It's got to be a company that we feel good about and that we're we're proud to be associated with. So, I mean, if it's K&N, I guess... Well, maybe they just have to bring something extra to the table. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of money, right? (laughs) Maybe they should listen to us and uh, uh, seek our advice on the products that they should be producing. (laughs) Well, that's true. Yes, that's a good idea. So maybe it could be a whole consult thing with us. You know, they come on board, they learn about ways to build motorcycle filters for adventure riding, and uh, and in a way get exposure from it too. That could be Mm. good. We, we, We come cheap, Sam's. Whiskey, you know, a couple of beers for yep. me. <laughs> we're happy. I don't know about I Graham, though. I, I, I should, well, no, Graham and I, we, we're both fueled by whiskey. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that wraps it up. Uh, anyone have anything else to add? Sounds like a good fun one to me. Well. The only thing I, can, I want to say, Jim, is what a great source uh, you're providing, and I think uh, anyone who's listening to this show should get your mates onto it because it really is a good re- resource for people. And uh, we're getting some great feedback here um, down under um, about uh, what you're putting out, and uh, it's great, fantastic, good on you, mate. Well, well, thank you very much. It's uh, much appreciated. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up then. This is it. This has been Adventure Rider Radio Raw. We hope you enjoyed it. See you, everyone. Bye. Wait, wait, wait. Where's the after show party? (laughs) Your place. I guess we'll have it here. And you know what? It's it's perfect because it's windy today, but it's sunny. The waves are coming. I'm looking out at the the beach right now and the the waves coming. It's, It's kind of a gorgeous day, even though it's blowing a little bit cool. So, okay, come on over. Yeah, well, the right sun's on. up here now, so it's okay. We'll put a shrimp on the barbie. Thank yeah, you. Bye, <laughs> Jim. Thanks, everyone. Bye, See you. Cheers. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that about wraps things up for this week. Well, no, sorry, this month, because it's a once-a-month show. you got to drop back next month to find out what's going to happen. Remember, if you want to find out more, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can go forward slash raw, or you can just click on the raw button. Don't forget to subscribe. You have to subscribe separately to this show. It's a different show than regular Adventure Rider Radio. And hey, if you like what you're hearing and you want to keep it coming to you free, consider dropping us a donation. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Donate button. I want to give special thanks, of course, to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, and, of course, to the co-hosts, Sam Manicom, Grant Johnson, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, and, of course, the missing Graham Field. My name is Jim Martin, and this has been Adventure Rider Radio Raw.